What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of phonics and statistics. Our first guest will be Elfrida Hebert, and we'll cover phonics and their importance. Then we'll speak with Professor Shannon Tass to teach us a little bit about statistics. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and take a glimpse at this day in history. But before all that, let's step into my world. In my job as the education librarian, I love to read about all the great things that other educators are thinking and talking about. I recently reread a book by one of my favorite educational theorists, Nell Noddings. In it, she wrote... Through more than five decades of teaching and mothering, I have noticed that children, and adults too, learn best when they are happy. Nodding contends that happiness should be an integral aim of both life and education. I fully agree with this great theorist, but especially when it comes to reading. Reading is best done when we are happy, and for us to be happy when we read, we need to read stuff that we enjoy. Far too often as adults, we give books to children just because they made us happy, but therein lies a problem. When it comes to reading, it is clear that no one book will make all readers happy. I'm sure everyone has had an experience of reading a book that you just loved, but then giving it to a friend, you found they could barely tolerate it. We all have different experiences with text. Because of this, no two readers are likely to interact with text in the same way. This is why I encourage all the students I teach at the university to really get to know the readers they are working with at a personal level. Only then will they be able to really find the right kinds of books that will resonate with those readers. The same advice goes for anyone wanting to share books with kids. First, find out what makes them happy, then find books that fit those needs. Happily, along the way, we are sure to find that book that we can share and love together as a family. That book in my family happens to be The Judge by Harvey and Margot Zemeck. But even if we don't agree, we're still bound to explore the wide world of great literature in new and exciting ways that will make us all happy to read and learn. And those are today's thoughts from Rachel's World. Rachel's World. Language is a building block of literacy, and phonics are an important element. We're on the phone today with phonics expert Elfrida Freddie Hebert. Freddie, English is a much maligned language with many rules and exceptions to those rules, and that's really because it has its roots in so many other languages. So can you tell us why do you think that this can be such a struggle for beginning readers? Well, the the thing about English is that it's very unusual in that it has two very strong linguistic sources. So we add words from other languages like um, khaki or lieutenant um, 
or bungalow, um, words that came into English as the um, Great Britain was moving around its colonies. But the, the thing is that our language, you know, is grounded in Anglo-Saxon, which has a, one phonic system and one morphological system. And the thing that I talk about with language that we often forget is how incredibly important the meaning units of words are. But before I go into that, I just want to say then we have over that a French layer. And the French layer functions differently morphologically and phonetically. And what's important to realize is that French layer is actually going to be really important when you're in literary and academic domain text and content areas. And then almost all languages have that top little Greek layer of, um, of technical words, you know, like geothermal or, um, you know, chemotherapy. So, and, and even a word like television. And you'll actually see derivatives of that that are very recognizable in lots of different languages. But what makes English unique, you know, yes, we've brought in, especially as Great Britain, you know, went to all these different parts of the world, uh, words from lots of different languages. Um, but what is really fundamental for, for, for children and for teachers to know is that we have these two systems, and what's especially important is how we create new words in those systems. So in the French system, you have a lot of derivations, um, like procedural, procedure, proceed. And what happens with those um, derivations is sometimes um, we do a lot of like changing the parts of speech. You know, so um, we can have a word like, um, um, and I'm just kind of groping here for some of these <laughs> words, which I should have a list of them. But, um, well, even the word nominalization, I mean, it, we, we take a word and make it into a noun. Yeah. So nominalize and then nominalization or um, um analyze and analysis. So there's a lot of moving words around and there are lots of endings and prefixes in um in that French layer and in in the Anglo-Saxon or Germanic layer. What's amazing is how many compound words we have in English. Definitely. And and sometimes we get so um bogged down with ensuring that kids know all these phonics um, relationships, some of which can be fairly arcane and not in that many words. But it turns out that the compounding procedure is just so prolific. This is just amazing to me, Freddie, because I it, it just makes it sound so complicated. And it always, when you speak of this, and I've heard you speak in conferences and such, it just amazes me that anybody actually learns to read or to speak a language. <laughs> and there's so much of this that impacts, particularly the early learners. What are some of those impacts, particularly this this complexity with all these different layers and compound words and roots? How does that help us to understand how we can teach 
particularly these beginning readers, how to read and how to play with language? Well, I think one of your, that your last phrase, play with language, is really an important idea. But let me just be clear that, um, you know, human beings are incredibly smart. And um, young children do a lot of generalization. And one of the things we want to do in schools is to help give kids data that they can generalize. So, you know, the sooner we help, for example, students seeing um, how we put two words together and have a new idea, often there's a relationship, like a, a firehouse isn't a house on fire, but it has to do with where fire engines are kept. So I, I don't think that this, um, I mean, lots of people go through life never even knowing about these these distinct parts of English, right? I mean, I think of my mother who um, is almost 101 now, and I, she's always curious about what I do. And I uh, was describing this work uh, about the Germanic layer or Anglo-Saxon layer and the French layer, and my mother is a proficient German speaker. She was a native German speaker, and she had never known about the cognates in English and German. And yet you would not know in speaking to her that she wasn't a native English speaker. I mean, I'm just saying a lot of this is implicit. It's when you come to reading and encounter new words that some of this information can be helpful. So what so, pieces of that is helpful? I mean, I know like when... Um when they have the national spelling bee and such, they they often ask for, you know, the origin of the word and that type of thing. So I would assume that some of this kind of thing rolls over into reading, where if we know the origin or the root or the structure, that it would help us to decode that in a, in a better way? Well, so if if human beings are really good at generalizing, and you early on start, and that's when you use the term play, I mean, um, compounds are, can be a great source of playfulness, right? Um, can, um, can this compound actually work? So, you know, we might have grasshoppers and we might have all these different, uh, you know, butterflies, but do you have a grass fly? And maybe there is a species called a grass fly. I don't know. But playing with kids around words like that can help them <clears throat> anticipate that there are going to be other words like that. And one of the things about reading is I don't think it's um, explicitly applying knowledge. One of the things we've often done in reading education is somebody will recognize a distinction um, in how we comprehend or how we write. And then suddenly all kids have to know that distinction and have to be taught a strategy. And that's not what I'm suggesting. But kids do need to anticipate that when they read, excuse me, that when they read, there are going to be new words that they haven't seen before. All of this, yeah, all of this just really seems like a very, a very interesting combination of being able to intuit and to use just our natural abilities towards language and reading, but then also to 
have some strategies and some concrete things that balance that out. So kind of where, where do we draw the line? I mean, what, how do we make this balance achievable, particularly in reading instruction? Yeah, I think that's a really good, good um, question. I mean, if, if I were to start as a teacher or as a parent homeschooling, I would start with the notion that, you know, when you read something, I mean, we read things to learn about the world. Sometimes in stories we learn to, to read to learn about how we function as people. Um, and in informational text, you learn to read about, um, you know, about butterflies or about cameras or about how people have dressed in different eras. But what you need to realize is that anytime you read something, there's going to be some new things for you to learn, and that means that there are going to be new words. So to me, that's a really basic understanding. You know, because I think sometimes, especially when kids approach things like assessments or even a new text and they say, I can't do it, what, what they need to know is, yeah, it's not that you can't read. It's that there are always going to be new words for you to figure out. So I think that's a really fundamental understanding that we haven't done a very good job of, of describing. And it actually turns out that we have a very good understanding of about how many new words you're going to encounter in text. So you're going to see in any new text you read, probably you know two or three in every hundred words, some of those words are going to be repeated, words that you probably haven't seen before. And you know what? about a third of those words are likely to be proper names. And sometimes those proper names are very arbitrary. You know, somebody decided to call a character Louise rather than Mary. And other times in informational texts, the character matters, like if you're reading about George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. So I think that that anticipation anticipation, especially for kids who struggle in reading or at the beginning points, to know, like, it's not that you're not getting good at this. It's that you're reading to learn things, so there's going to be some new words in it. Freddie, we have to take a quick break, but we'll get right back to our conversation after story time. Today, we are reading an excerpt from Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, and then we'll return to our discussion of phonics with Freddie Hebert right after this. He was plainly blind, for he tapped before him with a stick, and wore a great green shade over his eyes and nose, and he was hunched, as if with age or weakness, and wore a huge old tattered sea cloak with a hood that made him appear positively deformed. I never saw in my life a more dreadful-looking figure. He stopped a little from the inn, and, raising his voice in an odd sing-song, addressed the air in front of him. Will any kind friend inform a poor blind man, who has lost the precious sight of his eyes and the gracious defense of his native country, England, and God bless King George, where or in what part of this country he may now be? You are at the Admiral Benbow, Black Hill Cove, my good man, said I. I hear a voice, said he, a young voice. Will you give me your hand, my kind young friend, and lead me in? I held up my hand, and the horrible, soft-spoken, 
eyeless creature gripped it in a moment like a vice. I was so much startled that I struggled to withdraw. But the blind man pulled me close up to him with a single action of his arm. Now, boy, he said, take me in to the captain. Sir, said I, upon my word, I dare not. Oh, he sneered, that's it. Take me in straight or I'll break your arm. And he gave it as he spoke, a wrench that made me cry out. Sir, said I, it is for yourself, I mean. The captain is not what he used to be. He sits with a drawn cutlass. Another gentleman, come now, march, interrupted he. And I never heard a voice so cruel and cold and ugly as that blind man's. It cowed me more than the pain, and I began to obey him at once, walking straight in at the door and towards the parlor, where our sick old buccaneer was sitting, dazed with rum. The blind man clung close to me, holding me in one iron fist, and leaning almost more of his weight on me than I could carry. Lead me straight up to him, and when I'm in view, cry out, Here's a friend for you, Bill. If you don't, I'll do this. And with that he gave me a twitch that I thought would have made me faint. Between this and that, I was so utterly terrified of the blind beggar that I forgot my terror of the captain, and as I opened the parlor door, cried out the words he had ordered in a trembling voice. The poor captain raised his eyes, and at one look the rum went out of him, and left him staring sober. The expression of his face was not so much of terror as of mortal sickness. He made a movement to rise, but I do not believe he had enough force left in his body. "'Now, Bill, sit where you are,' said the beggar. "'If I can't see, I can hear a finger stirring. Business is business.' Hold out your right hand. Boy, take his right hand by the wrist and bring it near to my right. We both obeyed him to the letter, and I saw him pass something from the hollow of the hand that held his stick into the palm of the captain's, which closed upon it instantly. And now that's done, said the blind man, and at the words he suddenly left hold of me, and, with incredible accuracy and nimbleness, skipped out of the parlor and into the road, where, as I still stood motionless, I could hear his stick go tap, tap, tapping into the distance. It was some time before either I or the captain seemed to gather our senses, but at length, and about at the same moment, I released his wrist, which I was still holding, and he drew in his hand and looked sharply into the palm. Ten o'clock, he cried. Six hours will do them yet and he sprang to his feet. Even as he did so, he reeled, put his hand to his throat, stood swaying for a moment, and then, with a peculiar sound, fell from his whole height, face foremost, to the floor. I ran to him at once, calling to my mother, but haste was all in vain. The captain had been struck dead by thundering Apoplexy. This- 
This is Worlds Awaiting, and I'm Rachel Wadham. Now we're back on the phone with Freddie Hebert. She's a researcher with a focus on literacy and particularly at-risk youth. Freddie, one of the things that I love about the work that you do is you actually work with providing texts and helping teachers provide this instruction. You speak of the work that you do with your coaching, and then you provide this information out through your text project out to parents and teachers. So could you share with our studio audience a little bit about that project and why it's so important to you? Well, I happen to have been... um very blessed in my life. I'm the child of, as I described my mom as a native German speaker, my parents were um, refugees to North America, to Canada, and um, they weren't able to finish school. And here I am, somebody who's, you know, gotten a PhD and all of it through public education. And Text Project is my way, my husband and my our way of giving back to the world, giving back to education. So I, for you know, forty five years, have been studying how we can support kids, especially kids who I describe them kids who depend on schools to become highly literate. Um, how can we show, give parents and teachers access to to the information that I've gained over these years? And one of the things I know is that when you're learning to read, it helps to have certain patterns of words repeated. That's called the letter-sound correspondences, right? And also certain morphological families repeated. It helps to have some repetition in learning. If every time everything you see is new, it's going to be hard to remember some core things, right, to generalize. So at Text Project, um, I've shared this information in different kinds of, of text. So we've got text for beginning readers called Beginning Reads. Um, we've also got an informational set of texts that give kids the opportunity to really um, have greater exposure to the words that are most common across texts. So we know that there are about 2,500 families of words that account for at least 90% of the text that children read. So I've written some texts called FYI for Kids and Talking Points for Kids. They're about information, but they have higher than usual percentages of the common words. So they're, you know, we can actually tell kids about these texts. There are going to be fewer of those rare words because we're trying to get you really automatic with the words that that matter the most. Um, We also have um, a bunch of um, products that have to do with vocabulary learning. So there are particular groups of words in stories, for example, that occur commonly. Stories typically have more rare words than informational text because a good story writer um, uses a thesaurus. I mean, they maybe not directly, but intuitively, they don't keep using the same word over and over and over again to describe how a character is moving. That's not the case in informational text. You know, a mathematician isn't going to look for a synonym for the word equation or algorithm. (laughs) So true, so true. Right. So um, we've actually got lessons around words and um, stories, the kinds of words that happen a lot. So a really important group of words and stories 
are words that describe how characters communicate. So if a character is whispering or if a character is uh, screaming, that's very different. Um, you know, you're conveying something very different there. So we have some um, a product um, called Exceptional Expressions for Everyday Events. So they take everyday words, you know, like loud, and describe some other ways in which, you know, in high-quality literature, you can expect to see some of those words. And then we also do the same thing with informational text. So there's certain informational words that ground our knowledge. There are words that appear in stories as part of events. For example, we have a lot of words in, in English having to do with water, you know, because a lot do. of yeah. is covered with water. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not in Utah. Not, not quite as much. We're, we're a yeah. little landlocked in Utah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, so, you know, we, we have sets of those words, so networks of words, which can be really important in your learning to see how all these words fit. And we've provided pictures, illustrations for all of them. So we've got maybe seven or 800 pictures related to 15 really critical sets of ideas, you know, about transportation, about water, about um, fashion, about the roles people have. And all those things also show up in stories and informational text. So, so that's, that's what we've done at, at Text Project. I hope my listeners are grasping what a rich resource this is. And I also truly appreciate that you've aimed this at teachers, but also at parents and tutors and other people who are going to be needing to work with children. These are highly instructional texts that foundationalize some of these literacy concepts and reading concepts for kids in such a direct and simple way. That is just so important. So I I cannot say enough about how much I love Text Project and well, and how proud I am just to have it available. So thank you, Freddie, for all you do there. And I hope people will go and check it out. Well, I appreciate that. I also should mention that um, uh, a world-renowned um, teacher educator, Pat Cunningham from Wake Forest, has worked on creating a parent tutor guide using uh, the beginning reads and also um, the FYI for kids. So if you go on to Text Project, there's actually uh, a, a, a label, I think, at the top um, that will direct you to, um, to this guide. Um, and there are all these guide sheets, and there are all kinds of things. So I know a lot of people do tutoring. I know a lot of you know, college students do tutoring, but often they don't have very much guidance as to what to do. So um, that's what we've done. I also should mention that, you know, we've got um, a very big YouTube um, collection of presentations. Um, Jan Dole at University of Utah has been, her and her spouse, um, Patrick Brennan, who's a videographer, have been really generous to Text Project. Uh, Patrick has um, offered his services as a videographer to interview um, senior scholars in the field. So we have an ongoing series. Uh, Ray Rutzel, who was at Utah State for a long time, is going to be our next scholar um, where we have an interview. So these interviews basically are telling people, you know, 
where, why did I go into this field? What did I learn? That kind of thing. I think that's a really precious resource. Oh, I I couldn't agree more. This this really is such an important field. I think particularly for our young people because. As I know that you believe as well, if we can have young people succeed in being able to have these literacies and particularly reading, we've set them up for success in so many other ways. And having this foundation is is just a wonderful way to start. So along with that, why is this your passion? Why You kind of explained at the beginning some of your background, but are there other reasons that this area of study is a passion for you? Well, I think the fact that I was an English language learner and, and I had some issues with learning to read, um, but that wasn't really what got me interested. When I was in college, the first wave of Title I came through, and you could actually make more money as a college student going and doing tutoring under Title I in a school than you could for work study, you know, and I was putting myself through school. And I started working in this first grade classroom, and this world just opened up to me. I thought I wanted to be an attorney. And suddenly I'm interacting with these little people, and and this was in Fresno, California, and a lot of them were English language learners who at that point, they're, you know, this is um, in the 60s, at that point they're... um, language wasn't being recognized greatly in school. Excuse me. And I just became fascinated by how children think and learn and also what stands in the way of some children um, being great at that. So I got really fascinated with it. Um, at California, didn't have a teaching credential as part of an undergraduate at that point, but I could get my teaching uh, courses while I got my history major. And once I got into classrooms, it was kind of like I had even more questions. You know, like, why do we group kids in certain ways? Why did we say you're in the low group and give them a name, you know? <laughs> like the Like the Robins and then the top guys were like the, you know, <laughs> parakeets or something. I don't know. One of my least favorite approaches to to literacy instruction, <laughs> I will yeah, say. <laughs> and now, I mean, we're back to doing a lot of this with the level yeah, books and yeah. saying you're okay uh-huh. or you're mm-hmm. okay. And yep. that's, that was one of the first studies I ever published was on the deleterious effects of labeling kids. Um because you're, you're not just a J, first of all, it's hard to know exactly what constitutes some of these level texts or these levels. But in fact, you might just have not had very much experience reading. You might not have certain vocabulary and background knowledge, which is really critical. So I started asking questions and, and then went to graduate school to start answering some of them. And that's what I love to do in, in life. I mean, I have no plans to retire. I continue to ask questions. I like to questions that I think matter a lot for the success of kids who depend on schools, on public schools. That's, that's what I do, and I love it. Um, I have been, for the last 42 years, I spend, well, except today when I'm talking to you, I've already done my two hours of writing. 
but I typically do three hours in the morning where I simply, you know, look at different questions that I'm asking. And um, I have I have just a wonderful life. I've been, like I said, I've been very, very blessed. Well, thank you for sharing your blessings with the rest of the literacy community. I I feel very blessed to have read your work and to heard you speak and and find that my literacy expertise has been deepened from yours. So keep asking questions, Freddie. I I want to see more answers that come out of your your writing and your question asking because this this is what we need to help support our children into the future in their strength and literacy. So thank you so much. And thank you for your commitment and for giving me this opportunity. Um, thank you very, very much. And for people who are doing the work, there's so many people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, ensuring that kids have these opportunities. Well, this is one of the reasons I love having this radio show is that I can provide a different avenue for people to have success in literacy and to engage with their kids and the kids that they love in literacy aspects. And so I am just I'm grateful to have this medium plus all the other mediums that I work in to to get the word out about the importance of literacy. And I'm so grateful for people like you who who join my voice and in strengthening children around the world in in their learning and growth. So Thank you. From, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all you do. And I can't say enough about how much I appreciate all that you've contributed to our field. And I'm so very grateful. Elfrida Hebert is an expert in phonics. She researches early childhood development and literacy in the classroom. Now, let's take a look back in history and examine some exciting events that have happened on this date, March 23rd, throughout the years. Every day provides the opportunity to try new things, learn, grow, and explore. But as the old saying goes, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. So if we had a time machine, what could we have witnessed this day in history? Well, let's first go back to the days of King Henry VIII. After he and England broke off from the Catholic Church and established the Church of England, Henry VIII started something called the Dissolution of the Monasteries. Essentially, he was closing down the monasteries around England. And on March 23, 1530, Watham Abbey was the last monastery to be closed. Henry was interested in continuing his line, but despite all the things he did to try, the throne of England was soon up in the air. The Stuart line stepped in with little success, and after one king was exiled and beheaded, a short foray into a people-based democracy, more infractions from the next Stuart king, and a growing animosity towards Catholics, James Francis Edward Stuart, the great-great-grandson of Mary Queen of Scots, was exiled in France. On this day, in 1708, he attempted to regain his throne by attempting to land at the Fifth Fort in Scotland, and it didn't work. Now let's fast forward to the Revolutionary War. On March 23rd, 1775, a famous phrase was coined by a certain Patrick Henry. A convention was convened in Virginia to discuss a document that would further put distance between the colony and the king. During his speech, Henry proclaimed, Give me liberty or give me death. Into the future of the Americas, we will find Lewis and Clark coming to an end of their expedition into the Louisiana Purchase. It was in 1806, and after 678 days, they decided to head back. The return trip to St. Louis only took 185 days. 
Hopping back over the Atlantic to visit Victorian England, on this day in 1888, the first meeting of the Football League was convened. They didn't know at the time it would become the oldest professional association football league in the world. March 23, 1909, former President Teddy Roosevelt goes on a safari to Africa sponsored by the National Geographic Society and the Smithsonian Institution. In 1919, Benito Mussolini founds his fascist movement in Italy. And just 14 years later, on this same day, Adolf Hitler is declared dictator of Germany. On March 23, 1965, the American Gemini 3 spacecraft was launched. It was our first two-man spaceflight with Gus Grissom and John Young manning it. And now we have reached today, March 23, 2019. What will you make happen today? Statistics are all around us. Often, we can't go a few days without encountering them in one form or another. Today, I have BYU professor Shannon Tass in studio to discuss this important branch of mathematics. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you for having me. We are excited to visit with you today, and we also have your colleague, Dr. Cox, as well, and and he will offer some thoughts on your collaborations. But before we get to that, I would like you to tell us why statistics? Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you, how did you become a statistician? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I didn't know much about it when I started college, but I sort of stumbled into the statistics major and just fell in love with it. It's uh, one thing I just really love about it is uh, as statisticians, we work um, really it's a collaborative kind of discipline where we help others kind of make sense of their data and, and look at the patterns and the answers and the signal that we can see from data. And I love it because I've, in my life, I've worked in autism, in different areas of counseling and in cancer research, in wildlife research, climate research, um, even uh, planetary geology. I've done projects there. So just a broad range of, of applications that I find just fascinating that um, I can be an expert kind of in the analysis, but still learn about all these different excellent areas of research that, that go on. I love that you bring this wonderful sense that this is very collaborative to to the table. Particularly in this day and age, statistics and data are huge, and they are talked about all the time. I mean, you talk about climate change. You know, we've had reports just come out recently about, you know, how long we have before before the climate's going to tank and all of these kinds of things. So I think what you do is really, really important. And I think that there is a lot to be said here. So if we think about um, how we would as concerned adults kind of help our children understand statistics or help put them on the path to maybe becoming a statistician someday, what, what would you recommend? Or what are some of your thoughts maybe about how we help um, our children understand this world of statistics? Uh, That's a great question. Um, So one of the best things, especially as you've said, that uh, it's a world of data. Data is everywhere. It's becoming more prevalent. I actually um, recently heard that um, we've collected more data in the past two years than we have 
in the past, ever since humans started collecting data. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, I, I don't know the exact quotes, but definitely it's increasing exponentially. So we, we're, you know, with all the different sources of data, it's becoming easy. But I think that um, just becoming intelligent consumers of data is one of the most important things. Like when you read something in the news or on the internet and I always like to tell my students, like, you know, think about it. Where are they getting that data? Because, um, you know, it, it can, I think data tells the truth, but the way that people interpret it can definitely be spinned in different ways. And, you know, understand is that, was that representative of the people they're talking about? Is that, is there any sort of bias that's introduced in that? Are, um, so just understanding it, can we trust these sources of data and not, not being too skeptical, but definitely having a healthy skepticism when we, when we look at studies, look at kind of things that are approaching us. I think that's the first step to not believing everything we, that we see, even if it seems scientific. Dr. Cox, you have a great example when you've been working with Dr. Tass about a truth that you learned from some of the data that, you, that you've been collecting. So can you tell us how that, what, what kind of truth did you learn from the statistics that Dr. Tass did for you? Yeah, uh, a couple years ago, we had a study that we did at the Counseling Center here at BYU where we looked at um, data that we'd collected over a couple decades and identified individuals who had autism and some who we didn't know whether they had autism, but it was a possibility. And we compared them to their peers uh, who uh, didn't have autism. And, uh, and Shannon, Dr. Tass, was able to clean up that data and analyze it in a way that we were able to make sense of a very messy data set because, I mean, there were there were... Uh, you know, instances of someone would have an appointment but not take some of the measures, and then some someone would take some of the measures but not have an appointment, mm-hmm. and and all of this stuff. Uh, Dr. Tass and her team were able to to clean up and make sense of, and we discovered uh, through the analyses that individuals on the spectrum benefit from therapy. This is a finding that had never been shown before uh, in this way. And uh, they benefit from therapy to the same extent as individuals who don't have autism, but it takes them often twice as long to benefit from therapy, and frequently they can deteriorate before they get better. That that is so fascinating, and I love those insights that the that really the statistics and the data analysis bring to that. Um, can I just? Yeah, please jump uh, in. Yes, just um, and that's I think a perfect example. I think that was a great study, but again, it's a, an example of um, looking at what what can we really generalize mm-hmm. to? I mean, because this population that we looked at is a population of people on the spectrum who have gotten into BYU. Um, by that definition, they're probably a little bit higher functioning than, than many students on the spectrum. And we can't, wouldn't necessarily be able to say that these results would replicate for, you know, maybe lower functioning students or lower functioning individuals on, in, on the autism spectrum. But just to just be really careful about, you know, who's the population? Who are we talking about? Who is this going to, who are we generalizing to? That That's so insightful. Thank you for adding that, because I think that's one of the things as critical consumers of research that we really need to pay attention to. You know, what are, what are the parameters and how, you know, how far can we take this? Because I think sometimes when we take statistics too far, it's because we're generalizing to other populations or, or 
extrapolating the data to places that that it shouldn't go. As you work with your students and and teach them these kinds of things, how what kind of strategies do you teach them to be those kind of critical consumers and the, looking critically at the data? What what are the skills and abilities that you're expecting them to come out with as great statisticians? Well, the math skills, learning how to, to do the model, but but just really understanding. I think some sometimes we don't focus on that even in our in our stat classes. We we talk about methods and stuff, but really kind of neat. We all need to understand is where, how the data is collected, where is it coming from? And that's, um, I think something that we need to focus on learning, learning that where, yeah, what is it covering? What is it representing? Um, the other thing is I think is unique about statistics is, um, what I always tell people, statistics is the science of studying uncertainty. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that we're really, it's all about uncertainty. We are, are kind of, there's a population or a big question out there that we don't know. We collect some sort of a sample and we're trying to basically make conclusions based on incomplete data, based conclusions about this bigger population based on our incomplete sample. And so it's all about kind of understanding the variability that comes from just the particular sample that we have and how can that generalize to everyone when, you know, people are different or our samples are different. That's such a marvelous way to look at it. And you have opened my eyes so beautifully today. I really appreciate that because I think sometimes we think about science and math as very certain, as very sure. But when we look at it and it does become this uncertainty, I think that that brings um, a lovely new aspect of it and, and having to be comfortable with the uncertainty and understanding where where the uncertainty lies is is a very a very beautiful way of, of looking at all of this. So along those lines, as we close our conversation today, maybe give a tip to a parent or other concerned adult out there who might have a budding statistician in their family who, you know, is someday going to, you know, come and be on your research team or something. What, what kinds of things would you recommend to them as strategies or ideas to kind of help their students prepare for this type of career? Yeah, I think... Um, just starting, I, I've seen just simple science projects where they're collecting data. Um, my sister actually used to be a, a junior high um, science teacher, and she'd come to me sometimes with her kids' science fair projects. But, you know, starting to learn the process of collecting data, learn the process of, you know, analyzing it, even just simple things like summarizing it, finding the average, finding the average between two groups and comparing that. Um, but it, uh, so just even just starting to work with it and uh, collecting it on the Internet. If people are interested, I, I always think, what what question am I interested in? And there's so much that we can find. And I think encouraging people to find data and see how it how it can answer some of their questions. But I would also say definitely math. Math is is definitely an important skill. And teaching our children not to be afraid of math is I think extremely important. Um, Because math isn't scary. It's not scary. scary. (laughs) We can all do it. I do think there sometimes people just put this mental block up like, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at math. But I don't believe that anyone's not good at math. We can have different ranges of talents on there, but, but 
understanding it is important, especially as we move forward in this modern world. I, I would agree. And I could not could not say with more enthusiasm, we are all good at everything. You know, we just need the experience, the right teacher, the right kinds of experiences. And I really dislike it when anybody says, you know, I'm not good at math or I'm not an artist or I'm not a reader. And I think, no, that's <laughs> not how we want to build our children. So let's let's build our children with open capabilities, particularly towards maths, because we want we want some more statisticians like you in the world to, yes. <laughs> to help us understand all of this uncertainty that we're facing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Shannon Tass is a professor of mathematics here at BYU. Now I'm going to step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Today I've got Janice Bunker, Janet Bradford, and Myrna Layton to talk about the importance of singing. We're in studio today with my three favorite music librarians. We are so glad to have you today. And I have a question that I would like us to discuss. I know we have all sung, we've all been choral singers, and we all sing and, and perform in music that way. So why is that important? Why is why is singing important? Why has it been important to your lives? And why is it important to us kind of generally and physically? I know, Myrna, you have, you have some information from some research that you've, that you've looked at about why choral singing is so important. Yes, I have um, looked at some research from both Sweden and California, kind of some joint research that has been um, done there that, where they're looking at the effect of, of singing on senior citizens um, and how um, bringing people together and then having them Seeing at the same time actually has an effect on people's heart rate. It affects um, their breathing. Um, besides the social aspect of, of just singing together, that there are actual health benefits for singing together that they have studied in senior citizens particularly, but if it's good for them, it ought to be good for the rest of us. Yeah, I I think that would be kind of counterintuitive for most people to think that there would be health benefits, particularly like for our heart and our lungs and our brains and all that kind of stuff. I I think that's really cool because I don't think people realize that, right? I know, Janet, you sing in choral groups quite frequently and have sung in many, many different groups. Why has it been good for you personally? I mean, what is that... What does that bring for you as an individual? Singing with a group is, um, it's a way to become one. When you're all trying to sing the, the harmonies and make it sound well, it, it unifies you in a way that you can't really do any other way. I don't, I, there's not really a word to explain how that feels, but when you are doing it, there's, there's no other way to get that feeling in my opinion, rather than just being in the group. Yeah. And I I mean, I think there's great opportunities, particularly for kids in schools today to be part of a choral group, even if, even if you don't have that kind of what you would determine talent for singing. And I hear kids all the time say that, oh, I'm not a singer. So, I mean, how do you address that? If you, people say, oh, I'm not a singer. I mean, Yeah. I don't think it matters if you're a singer or not. Yes. Everyone can sing. <laughs> yes. I mean, think about Christmas time. You know, you sing along with the radio. Um, your family sings Christmas carols. Maybe you're, you go to church and they have a, a time when you sing Christmas carols. It really is an expression of emotion 
that everyone can participate in. And who cares if you sound good? You can sing. It doesn't matter. It's being together and expressing joy and having fun. I don't think it matters if you're a singer or not. Yeah. And I have another comment because in the olden days. (laughs) So now we have all this tech stuff to distract us. But when we took family trips, our family would sing together. In the car. In the cars. Yeah. And that was such a fun and yet unifying experience. And we would challenge each other. We had the ABC song where we'd sing nursery songs and then in between sing the alphabet to get someone ready to call on the next person to do the next nursery rhyme. And it was just fun, but it was also using your brain and, and unifying us as a family. And I think it's really interesting that the Boy Scouts of America... One of the big things that they do every time they go camping or they have uh, like a big uh, jamboree or whatever, (laughs) they have what they call a campfire and they sing together. All, you know, the stereotypical is that 12 and 13 year old boys don't like to sing. But I have seen so many (laughs) teenage boys belting at the top of their lungs (laughs) These crazy songs, and they're having a great time, and there's actions, whatever. It, if the Boy Scouts can do it, everyone can do it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the Boy Scouts can do it. I mean, it, it was a big part of your family, too, Myrna. So how did that unify you as a family? <laughs> it's a tough she doesn't question. know. It just <laughs> did. It's a totally tough question. But yeah, I mean, well, and I know your kids sing too. So how how did you how did you help your kids to to feel confident in that arena and to develop those things, or was it just natural for them? Well, I just think that if you sing to your children when they're little, like when they're babies, I mean, I just think when was there ever not singing? in our family there was always singing in our family so it's it just becomes something that you do I my daughter now with her children they you know they can't go to sleep if she hasn't sung to them if it's a crazy night and you know one child is like but you didn't sing to me (laughs) I love it so you know it's it's just so much a part of like what what everyone expects that life, of course, is going to include singing. So that just make it part of a culture of your family, right? Yeah. yeah. And we have folk songs. I and mean, where did folk songs come from? People sang to each other, and they taught them to their kids, and their kids taught them their kids. I mean, you know, I catalog music all the time, and there's collections of folk songs from everywhere, and they're different. But it gets handed down from parent to child, parent to child. I mean, and another weird, I'm sorry, going off on a different subject. People have studied, like, playground songs. There are different variations of the same little playground song or jump roping songs. All over the United States, there are different variations of the exact same song. Where did that come from? People sang it to each other as kids. They grow up. They move to a different spot. They teach it to their kids when they're teaching them how to jump rope. The kids go on the playground and ta-da, there you go. It's really a shared culture of music in every aspect. I mean, music is everywhere. And I think that that is a perfect note to end on because I think for a lot of times we think that 
music is kind of outside our realm, but I think it is so much more in our realm than we often give it credit for. And just singing to a baby or playing a game that involves a song or singing a Christmas carol or being a part of a choir, it all just comes together to make music a beautiful part of our lives and and our families and our culture and all of those things. Wonderful. Thank you, ladies. I'd like to thank Janice, Janet, and Myrna for coming to talk with me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. First, we spoke with expert Elfrida Hebert about the importance of phonics. After that, we heard from BYU professor Shannon Tass about statistics. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.